0: Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And Now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Stand with me, if you will, Revelation chapter 21. Man, it's good to be out of Revelation 20, man, I'll tell you. Tough passage, man, when you talk about hell, you know, you go home and you're like, oh man, what'd you guys talk about in church today, hell? This is awesome. Well, we get to talk about heaven today. I'm just going to read one, pass, one, one verse and then we're going to pray. Chapter 20, Revelation 21, beginning in verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We, we thank you for that truth, Lord. That everything that we're experiencing in this life is temporary, Lord. That better days are ahead. And we thank you for your word that not only tells us uh, the truth about all of the bad things, but the truth about the good things too. That there are, there, there's a time coming when all of this will fade away. All the former things will be passed away. Everything will become new. It'll be a brand new heaven, a brand new earth, a brand new environment, Lord. A brand new everything. And, Lord, we long for that day. We know that day is coming. We pray that you would encourage us this morning, Lord, to set our minds on things above and not the things of this earth, not on things of this world. We pray that you would um, help us to be encouraged this morning if we are weary, that we would continue to fight the good fight, Lord, that you would meet each and every person in this place right where they are. We thank you that that's your desire for us. And so we ask you by your Spirit now to come, to speak into our hearts, Lord, and just do the work that only you can do. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So I have a confession to make to you this morning that I have been self-diagnosed as a neophiliac. So, you know, it's self-diagnosed by the way. If you're interested in being self-diagnosed, it's really simple, just go on Google, type in whatever it is that you're looking for and you'll find a label for yourself. Don't worry, it's out there for you. So I did that and I found out that I have neophilism. So what is that? That is somebody, a person who seeks novelty and change. I like new things. And in fact, my wife can attest to that. Um, After a, a certain period of time, it's just a cycle in my life that after I start something and I get something going and I kind of, you know, achieve some level of whatever success in starting something from the ground up, I get bored and I want to start over. Most people don't like starting anything. They like to take something from, from, you know, 10% on. But I'm the direct opposite. I like to take something from zero to, a, to a, you know, some level of success and let somebody else take it over. That's just how my personality is. You know, I, I am not a, a meoneist. That's my wife. My wife is a Mioneist. She's a person that I call a rut person. She does not like change. She likes to sit in the rut and she likes to just do the same thing over and over again. And so God, you know, opposites attract is true. God brought us together and, and we're in this thing called marriage. So compromise and, you know, I'm not telling her she has to change to be like me and she's not cha- telling me I have to change to be like her. That's what marriage is supposed to look like. Her, her weaknesses are my strengths and my weaknesses are her strengths to, to a large degree. And, you know, we work it all out. Listen, if, if we were both the same kind of people, we would always be starting something new or we would do nothing new at all. And, and you know, it's interesting how God creates us like that. Neophilism. Well, there's coming a time and a day when Jesus is going to create all things new. He's in process already in your heart. If anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. All the things, the old is past, the new is come, right? Jesus is making us new. We are new, but we're in process of being made new. And you know that experience. You know, you feel that on a daily basis as God is working out things in your life. You know, he's working out the, the old man and the new man, and he's showing you things about yourself and all of that kind of stuff. It's, a, it's an amazing process. Well, Robert, Dr. Robert C. Kloinger is he's the psychiatrist that de- developed the testing for this term neophilism. And uh, he said really it's a response of the neurotransmitter dopamine. They did some studies, they found that people who have these tendencies to seek Uh, you know, the the new and the novel, they tend to have higher levels of uh, dopamine in their midbrain. I know you're really concerned about that, so there you have it. You know why it's happening, but he said something interesting. He said novelty-seeking is one of the traits that keeps you healthy and happy and fosters personality growth as you age. So I said, hey, there's hope for my personality. I just keep encouraging my wife, you know, with the science You know, you've got to bring the science in and just say the science says that there's hope for my personality, so we're good. Um, Author Winfred Gallagher, in her book, New, Understanding Our Need for Novelty and Change, she argues that neophilia has always been a quintessential uh, human survival skill. She goes on to say that although we're a, a neophiliac species, As individuals, we differ in our reactions to novelty because a population's survival is enhanced by some adventurers who explore the new uh, for new resources and warriors who are attuned to the risk involved. So we need both. That's how society moves forward. You know, is by people being willing to seek into the new, going willing to take the charge. Could you imagine if the twelve disciples just said? Yeah, I don't know if I want to take this new covenant into the world. I want to stay in the old covenant, and I just want to stay in Jerusalem and just hang out with, you know, with my people that I've grown up with and all that kind of stuff. They didn't want to seek out the new. No, they were also, they had the spirit of neophilism. They went out, and they took the new into the world, and that's why we're here this morning, because they did that. Some people are, you know, it's, it's like the missionary mindset. We're all missionaries, but some are... Some are senders and some are, you know, sent. Some are, some are senders, meaning we financially support those who have that call in their life because they're the novel seekers, the people that are willing to, that not necessarily willing, but called to step into those things. And then some of us are rut people. We want to stay right where we're at in our church and do the thing, and that's how God is created, and there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, for those of you who do have neophiliatic tendencies, you're in luck because all things are going to be made new. There's new things coming on the horizon. Don't worry. You know, Jesus is going to make them all new. So the title of my message this morning, All Things New. Last week we talked about hell. This week we're going to talk about heaven. Last week we talked about the dwelling place of the devil and his followers. This week we're going to talk about the dwelling place of God and his Followers. Last week, we talked about the old things being done away with. This week, we're going to talk about everything becoming new. It's a fascinating thing to consider that God is going to make all things new. Amen? There's five things I want to show you in our passage this morning relating to all things being made new. Uh, and there, the first and foremost, I want to share with you that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So let me set the stage for this vision. Remember, John is on the island of Patmos. The island of Patmos is just this rock, literally. Nothing on it. There's really no life on there. People were sent there to die. They're prisoners or whatever, and they were sent there to just, they were, they were um, you know, exiled there to die, it wasn't a fun place to live. John, now in that moment, in that place, has what I think probably is the most magnificent vision anybody has ever seen in their lives. You know, we all talk about, like, I wonder what it was like in Genesis 1 when God said, Let there be light, and boom, there was like, could you imagine what that would be like? John had an opportunity in this moment to see. God create a new heaven and a new earth. This has to be one of the most magnificent sites in all of human history, folks. John watching the, the new heaven and the new, create, new earth being created. The word new here is the Greek word kainos. The word kainos literally means not the old just being upgraded, but literally it's a brand new version um, you know, uh, an upgraded version of the old. He's not taking the former thing and just, you know, taking that and making it a little bit better. He's actually disposed of the former thing and he makes this brand new. It's totally, it's, it's not an, uh, it's a better version of the old one. This was prophesied in the Old Testament, folks. Isaiah spoke about this. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Again, Isaiah 66 verse 22 says, "For as the new heavens and the new earth that I shall make, uh, that I shall make rem, uh, shall be, remain before me, but according to his promise we are waiting for the new heavens. Oh, wait a second. I'm reading a different verse. <laughs> for as the new heavens and the new earth that I uh, I make shall remain before me, but according says the Lord, so shall your, my, my mind keep, my eyes keep going down to the next verse, which is a different verse, and I'm like, wait a second, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I, that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain, and then Peter also spoke about this, in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 13, he said, but according to his promise, We are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There is a new heavens and a new earth coming. And I say that to say heavens. John says heaven, singular, but every one of these supporting passages uh, talk about a new heavens. Let's talk about heavens for a second. What do you mean heavens, plural? Well, in, in, in ancient Judaism, they had the understanding that there were three heavens, Number 1, the first the first heaven being the earth's atmosphere, the sky that was the first heaven, the the second heaven being the out, outer space, the night sky, and the third heaven being the dwelling place of God. You might recall in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul said, "I know a man who went to the third heaven." You know, and that man many people believe was Paul himself. But what he said was the things that were seen were unspeakable. Like I can't even describe the, the vision of what that third heaven was like. That third heaven was the dwelling place of God. So when John is envisioning, you know, a new heaven and a new earth being created, what is he talking about? What's the new heaven? Is it the new heaven in terms of the earth atmosphere? Is it the new heaven, con- you know, or is it the second heaven speaking of the sky? Or is it the third heaven? I'm of the unpopular opinion that it's the third heaven. I think that it's a new heaven, literally the dwelling place of God. But also, he's going to create a new heavens because he's going to create a new earth, which means there's going to be a new atmospheric heaven, and there's also going to be a new space heaven. So there'll be heavens, plural, but I believe what John is speaking about here is the heaven the third heaven speaking to the dwelling place of God and you know I think Job makes reference to that in Job chapter 15 verse 15 where it says behold God puts no trust in his holy ones and the heavens are not pure in his sight heavens plural why aren't the heavens pure in God's sight right now well let me refresh your memory it was Satan who sinned in heaven with a third of the angels there was sin in heaven hold on to that thought Remember in the Garden of Eden, when sin came into the Garden of Eden, what happened to the earth? It was defiled. Why? Because there was sin on earth. Why is that not translate into heaven? There was sin in heaven as well. I think heaven is defiled as it were today. God has certainly made a way in all of that kind of stuff to, to, for that to be his dwelling place. And I don't know what he did in heaven. He doesn't make sacrifice for angels. We don't see anything like that in Scripture. There is no redemption for an angelic host who has been in the presence of God. Can Satan repent and go to heaven? No. Why? He's already been there. Though we, we have to walk by faith in order to come to heaven. The heavens currently, the heaven, both heavens, all three heavens are all defiled currently. God is going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And I, 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 I th- it's going to be an amazing moment there. He's going to make a new heavens and also a new earth. Now, let's talk about the earth for a second. Anybody who's traveled around the United States or anywhere in the world knows that there are amazing places on earth. Are there not? Like you walk and you look at the Grand Canyon and you're like, whoa, this is amazing. You go to Bora Bora or some tropical island and you're like, look at the colors in the ocean. You guys just got back from Florida. You know, the blue water and it's just so tranquil and beautiful and all that kind of stuff. There are so many amazing places. I would say, you know, well, and it's not me, but somebody else coined the phrase, God's country from Montana. I can't help it. I'm from there, but I can't help that. That's what they said. That was God's country, but it is God's country in my mind because I love the mountains. Walking and hiking up into those areas. There's, there's spectacular places on planet earth in this defiled place. Can you imagine what it's going to be like in the new earth when he creates that? What is that going to be like? Man, I think we're gonna, like, you know, you're gonna walk around going, I thought I saw the most amazing place, but there it is again, and there it is again, and there it is. Every place you, you gaze is going to be amazing, totally undefiled. You know, uh, it's going to be such an amazing place. And by the way, if you have aspirations for Mount Everest, you might be able to make it. When, when, in, in the new earth, you might be able to, you know, if you have an extra hundred grand on you, you can do it now. But in heaven, you could do it for free. So, hey, you know, it'll be awesome. But here's the thing, man, I, and I hate to break it to you. You know, there is something that's going to be a real bummer for those of you who are surfers in heaven because there's an absence of sea. There is no sea. You can't catch a wave, man. You're like, bro, really? I can't catch, catch, kit. No, there's no, uh, there is no sea in heaven. And that, there's good reason for that. Um, you know, the idea, the idea of the sea in the Jewish mind was a symbol of separation and evil. And so the idea that there will be an absence of sea, not necessarily absence of water. There's obviously a river named the Zoe River and, you know, the River of Life in the, in the New Jerusalem and such. But, you know, is there other bodies of water? Maybe. I don't know. But what we know is that there's no separation or evil in, that, in the new earth. If there is the absence of the sea. That's kind of the idea there. And hallelujah for that. Amen. Can't wait for that. Well, not only is there going to be a new heaven and a new earth, but also, check this out, a new Jerusalem. Look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now again, this must have been incredibly exciting for John. Remember, for 25 years, Jerusalem has been sitting in rubble as John is seeing this vision now. Again, he's like, what, the new Jerusalem? You gotta remember, the Jewish people were focused on Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem. It was everything to them. And John was a Jew before he was a Christian. And he's probably seeing the new Jerusalem going, whoa, this is amazing. This will be the third Jerusalem that's existed. The first Jerusalem is from creation until the millennial reign. That's the first Jerusalem. It's the Jerusalem that exists right now that's been rebuilt you know, multiple times over. You go into Jerusalem today and you're not standing on the same street that Jesus walked on. That's way down below it because it's been conquered and rebuilt and conquered and rebuilt. It's probably some like 13 to 20 feet down below you. You know, there, it's a call to tell layers of civilization. And there are places where you can get down onto the, the, the street level of maybe where Jesus walked. And it's amazing to, to look at the stones and stuff. You know how old those things are? They're old. They're super old. And, uh, you know, uh, but, but right now that, that Jerusalem exists. That's the first Jerusalem. The second Jerusalem is the Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom, which we've been talking about. The third Jerusalem will be this one, which it says comes down from hev- uh, comes down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And by the way, when it, when it says it came down from heaven again, what heaven are we talking about? The third heaven. It's coming down from where from God's dwelling place from God. It's not talking about the first heaven or the second heaven. So I think that's why. Verse 1 is speaking about the third heaven as well. But anyway, uh, you know, it comes down from God. And listen to the way it's described. It's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We'll talk about that in a second. This idea of it being prepared. The word prepared means to make ready. It's been made ready, and now it's coming down. It's, it, th- this word is specifically used in conjunction with a king that's coming, that's been made ready. It's interesting. The word prepared should immediately bring us back to the place that when Jesus said in John 14, 1 through 3, that he went to prepare a place for us. Let me read the passage. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus used the same word as John is using here to describe the place that he went to prepare for. Not only that, but uh, Paul tells us something incredible about this place that's being prepared for us. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man. Imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. This is all speaking about the same place, folks. The place that Jesus went to prepare for us. The place that John sees now coming down that's been prepared for us. And the place that John, that John, or Paul describes as being really inconceivable to us. This is the new Jerusalem. This is our dwelling place. It says it right here. You know, we think about what is heaven for us? The heavens? The heaven that you will dwell in for all of eternity will be the new Jerusalem. That's what it says here. It says it's prepared. He said he heard a loud voice from the throne, verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself uh, will be with them as their God. God is going to tabernacle with us. He's going to dwell with us. Jesus came, uh, you know, to tabernacle with us temporarily. But you know what? For all of eternity, we will tabernacle with Jesus. We're going to dwell with Jesus forever and ever and ever in the new Jerusalem. That's where you're going to live. So you might want to ask God in your prayer time for, you know, your, hey, Lord, I want to live on Mount Everest, you know, somewhere over by, you know, in the New Jerusalem or whatever it is that it's going to be like. I want to live in the, the, the Arab quarters of the New Jerusalem, I don't know, whatever you want to pray for, but, but that's where you're going to live. The heaven for the believer is going to be the New Jerusalem because that's where Jesus will be, and we'll talk about this next week. But this will be a place that there is no, there is no sun, there is no moon, but there's light forever and ever. No need for sleep or anything like that. The light that is burning bright there is the shekinah glory of God. He is our light, and he will light up heaven for all of eternity, folks. It's gonna be an amazing place. Jesus went to go prepare that place. I don't know, you know, you think about streets of gold and all this kind of stuff, man. This place is gonna be amazing. This place is going to be like nothing you've ever even dreamed about. He went to prepare that place for you. It says that when, when the New Jerusalem came down, that John saw it as, um, as a bride adorned for her husband. Listen, I know that all of you dudes would, would agree with me that the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen in your life is your bride getting ready to walk down the aisle. Okay, like, you know what? I just gave you an alley-oop, <laughs> and you guys failed. You guys are horrible basketball players. Your wife is the most beautiful. Brian, you know, eyes. She's the most beautiful bride you've ever seen. And you, hey, all right, I don't. Hey, listen, that's not gonna fly now, dude. You guys done messed up. So, but it is the the wedding moment. Listen, the, the entire ceremony, to be honest with you, is about one moment. It's about the revealing of the bride. When the bride comes out, I've done many, many weddings and I've never seen anybody stand up for anything else in a wedding except for that moment. When the bride comes out, just radiant in beauty, you know, presenting her very best self to her husband to be, it's an intimate moment. It's an incredible moment. And uh, it's a moment that everybody shows up to see. John is saying it was like that. It was so beautiful, what I saw coming down from heaven. And, of course, he's vested interest in Jerusalem itself, but certainly the new Jerusalem, the things that he saw, man, they were amazing. We're going to look at more, in that into more detail next week in verses 9 through 27. But not only will, will we see a new heaven and a new earth, and a new Jerusalem, but also a new environment. Look at this. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away this is perhaps one of the greatest promises that we have in all of the scriptures folks right here that there's coming an environment in the new jerusalem where we will never experience any of the things that we are experiencing right now they're called the former things in this passage those former things are our present things These present things that we have to deal with. We we have to deal with the, the pain and the sorrow and the mourning and the crying and all of the anguish of the sin in this world. And what sin produces? Death. Some of you know Mike Kyle. My wife and I were surprised yesterday to hear that he didn't wake up yesterday. 66 years old. You know, this is the ramification. This is the former days. That's why that happens. I ask you to pray for his wife, Tina. They're such good people. We love them so much. But, you know, this was totally unexpected. And yet it was expected. Right? It's expected for all of us. We know that. Because we live in the former things right now. That's the the environment that we live in where the wages of sin is what? Death. There is tears here. There is pain here. There is suffering. There is sorrow. There is mourning. There is crying here right now. But listen, better days are coming, folks. We will enter an environment where none of that will exist. And to a large, well, to to the point that we won't even know what that is at some point in eternity. Be like, what is that? What is pain? You know Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? They had no idea what death was. They had no clue what death was. When, if you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. What does that mean? What is death? They'd never seen a caterpillar die. They'd never seen an insect die. They'd never seen anything die. Because death didn't exist. Death came in through the the disobedience of Adam and Eden. And then they understood what death was. But guess what? There's coming a day. When that will be restored and we will not, not know what death is. We won't ever experience tears. God will wipe every tear away. Here's what I want you to know about that. That doesn't happen until, until he creates a new heaven and a new earth. That doesn't happen. And, you know, when, when we go, you know, I don't know how that works, but, you know, are there tears in heaven? I, I think so until this happens because he says he'll wipe every tear away here. How can there, how, how can he wipe every tear away if there's no tears? Up to this point, you know, again, the, I think the heaven that God exists in currently is defiled. I think that there are all of these ideas, and, and you know, but, but one day all the former things will be gone. No more tears. You'll never ever shed a tear again. Never, never have to worry about that. There'll be no more death. You'll never have to worry about your loved ones passing away. And, you know, y- you'll never have to experience that pain. Talk about pain. Did anybody wake up this morning hobbling out of bed? You're like, Ugh. I'm only 50 and I feel like I'm like 90. You ever heard of plantar fasciitis? Man, not till I was 45. And then now I I know it well. And it's not fun. But guess what? No plantar fasciitis. No more hip. Dave, you won't have to have another hip replacement. No knee replacements, man. You won't have any ailments at all. You won't have to worry about your body going rogue on you. You know, all your cells will be in line in unity and obedient to the word of the Lord, and you'll never have to worry about any brain cancer. Never have to worry about any of that kind of stuff. There is none of that in this environment. It is going to be an incredible environment. Listen, you'll never get your heart broke in this this, uh, new environment. You'll never ever know what it's like to to um, feel anguish again over a relationship that's gone sour. Never experienced any of that. God wants you to know that right now because that's the hope that you hang on to because we're still in this world that all of these things exist, but he wants you to know it's coming. He makes all things new. And and there's something else I want to say that in Isaiah chapter 65, I read the verse already, verse 17, the very second half of the verse, it says, the former thing shall not be remembered or come to mind. And this is the idea that you're you're never gonna think back about all your failures in this life. You're never gonna think back on Man Lord, I really blew it for you over there and I never, you know, I didn't I didn't do these things well and you're not going to dwell on any of that. You do that now cuz you're in the former things, but there's coming a day when you'll never think about those kind of things again. They'll be erased from your mind. Not only that, but many many have wondered, how can I live in eternity knowing that there are people that I love dearly that didn't make it? That rest that that their resting place wasn't heaven. But it was eternal damnation. What about those people? Am I gonna think about those people? I think this tells us that, we, that none of those former things shall be remembered. And that's hard to understand for us here today in this day and age. It's like, oh man, you mean I'm not gonna remember my family member who was an unbeliever? No, because if you did, then there would be pain and sorrow and crying and all of these kinds of things. All of the former things are passed away. Listen, you're gonna be so overwhelmed with God in, in that environment, you're not going to worry about any of that, but but may that be uh, sort of a warning to us here in the day and age when we do live and we do breathe and we do have the ability to share that we do it. Hey, listen, after last week, I made a few phone calls to some people that the Lord's putting on my heart and my family. I said, I want to talk to you about your spiritual life, and I'm going to risk the relationship to do it because I care about you and I love you and I, you know, the Lord's putting you on my heart for a reason, so I'd ask you to do the same. Pray, man. Be willing to step into that, you know, but, but there'll be coming a day when all of those things will pass away. Listen, heaven, the new Jerusalem, will be literally, if, the new Jerusalem isn't heaven, I should say, but the new Jerusalem is the heavenly city where we dwell. It is the connection between the heaven and the earth. It is where, where God is with us, but Uh, It is going to be a Philippians 4, 8 kind of environment where we will meditate day and night on things that are true, on things that are honorable, on things that are just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. That is what that environment is going to be like. And you can practice right now. You can practice a Philippians 4, 8 mindset right now and you can say, I'm going to adapt that so I can practice uh, for eternity. So... So let that be a, an encouragement to you. Philippians 4, 8, meditate on that passage in all, all things that you're going through in life. Uh, the New Jerusalem will be, bring about a totally new environment. And John goes on to say that everything will be made new. Look at verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the uh, spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have uh, this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is the key, key verse for our passage this morning, these eight verses that we're looking at. Notice it says, he who is seated on the throne. This could be the Father, but I think it's probably the Son. We talked about it last week. Who's sitting on the great right throne? I think it's Jesus. Who's sitting on this throne? Maybe it's maybe it's God the Father. I think it's probably God the Son. Why? What's happening here? Things are being created. Well, who's, who's the instrument of creation? Well, Jesus is. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. In, him, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's speaking about Jesus. Jesus is creator of all things. The Father, I look at it like this. He's the architect. He has the plan. He says, Jesus, here's the plan. Jesus is the executor of the plan. Jesus makes it happen. Jesus speaks the world into existence. Jesus comes to earth and dies on a cross. He's, he's the, the, the executor of all of God's plan. The Holy Spirit, again, is the power to do all of these kinds of things. So they all three are working in conjunction, but Jesus is the one who executes all things. And here he, he, he is doing that once again, seated on the throne. He's making all things new. It's interesting that he, he tells John now, hey, write this down. Like, I'm thinking he's probably already like, well, I'm already writing all this down. I mean, I don't need to be told to write this down. I mean, this is amazing stuff. Think about it. Think about what he's seeing. He's probably, you know, oh, man, I gotta write all this stuff down. But he says this, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. These words are trustworthy and true. What is he saying? I, it is done. Here's the words. It is done redemptive history is over all things have become new it is done jesus said on the cross didn't he it is finished but now jesus said it is finished relating to redemption he opened the door to redemption but now he's saying it's done it's over all that i came to do is finished we created a new heaven a new earth all of that is i've made all things new it is done so write this down why because it's trustworthy and true What makes something trustworthy and true? When you hear somebody come to you and say, hey, I'll see you at 10 o'clock tomorrow, what makes that trustworthy and true? The person. The person makes the speech trustworthy and true. Here's the thing is, the person here makes what's written down trustworthy and true. And here's what I want to share with you today is that do you know that these things that have been written down in this thing the word of God are not considered trustworthy and true. A new poll came out in June of this year by Gallup, and, the, and they say that fewer in the US now see the Bible as the literal word of God. Here's, here's, the, here's what it says, an article I was reading said, a record low 20% of Americans now say the Bible is the literal word of God, down from 24% the last time the question was asked in 2017. So what is that, five years? Five years and we'll drop 4%. Dude, do you see the decline of what's happening when relating to the word of God, folks? That people are starting to, not only that, but think of this statistically. How many people in America say that they're Christians? Like 70, I think the the, the stat used to be 80. I think it's like 79 or 74% or something. It's still pretty high. About three quarters of the people in our culture today say that They're believers, but only 20% of them believe in the Bible. How does that work? Because people have hijacked a term and taken it for themselves. That's why Christian doesn't mean what it's supposed to mean. It's not Christ follower. It's follower of self. That's what it is. Of whatever Christ that I want to make. That's what it. That's what it means in our culture today. I don't like using that word. I like using the word. uh, I'm, I'm a Christ follower. Because that's specific. And a Christ follower, I believe in the literal word of God. I believe that this is inspired by, the, by God. I don't think it was written by man. I think that these are God's words. They're God-breathed. And, you know, there are many people in our culture that don't believe that. Listen to this. You know, the, the stats up, up until, you know, it was 24% in 2017, and that was half of what it was at its high points in the 80, 1980 to 1984 half since 1980 the decline of whether or not people believe the bible is the literal word of god has declined drastically and we're we're on a roller coaster downward right now relating to the word of god folks and that's why we see what we see listen meanwhile a new high of 29% say the bible is a collection of fables legends history and moral precepts recorded by man This is what people understand about that, about the word of God. This marks the first time significantly more Americans have viewed the Bible as not divinely inspired than as the literal word of God. The largest percentage, 49%, choose the middle alternative, roughly in line with where it has been in the previous years. So there's people that are on the fence going, I'm not sure, maybe it's part of it's inspired, part of it's not, I I don't know. 49% of people believe that. Wow. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Oh, the Bible, just a bunch of fables and all this. Have you ever read it? Oh, yeah, I've read it cover to cover. How did you read it? Just, just started reading it. Uh, you know, reading it like a history book. And you, know, you didn't find any history in there? This is history. You know the Bible is the most accurate history book in the world. And you can go back and and. Listen, the, we don't look for external things to prove the Bible. The Bible proves external historical facts. We don't look for ex- these external worldly facts to, to say, oh, see, it's in the Bible. It's, the Bible's true. No, opposite. That's true. How many people read history books and believe exactly what it says? That was written by man. Hello? But here, the word of God, man. It's, it's, it's so amazing uh, that people will, will discount it and you you listen if you read it with a human lens you'll never understand it you won't understand it you you have to read it with a spiritual lens you have to read it by faith and that's the problem and yet listen people walk by faith every day and they think that christians who walk by faith are foolish but they do the same thing in a lot of different ways so it's called hypocrisy but what it is, really, is a, the biggest deception in the world, folks. The enemy just trying to, here, here's the thing, is wh- how did he tempt the, um, the, the Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? Did God really say? It was an, a, an attack on God's word. We're, we're still living in that same attack, folks. Nothing's new under the sun. The enemy's still going after the word of God because he knows that the word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two, two-edged sword. He knows that the word of God, if people read the word of God, it will change their life. There's no other book in the world that you can sit down and read and that it make lasting change in your life, that it literally will change your life. It'll look right into your soul. Um, It's an amazing book. Jesus says, write it down, John. Write it down. He didn't write it down for Jesus' sake, but for our sake so that we had the story. God wants you to be encouraged. He's given you 66 books to encourage you. Here's how I relate to sinners. This is how I relate to people. This is my character, my nature, all of these kinds of things, but at the end of the day, I love you and I will go at great lengths to demonstrate my love for you, that I would send my own son to die on a cross for you. That's the whole purpose of the, of the 66 books, God is to, to our, guys, to reveal God's heart for us to reveal his character and nature that we can trust him, that he is trustworthy. Jesus goes on here to say who he is. He says, I am, that's, that's, a, that's a title for God. Moses, who should I tell them sent me? I am who I am, God sent me, and Jesus said, I am. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, again, he is the, he is the bookends of the Greek alphabet, folks, the Alpha, the Omega, he's everything in between. Uh, everything starts with him and ends with him. He goes on to give two promises to those who come to him by faith. To the, he says, to the thirsty I will give uh, from the spring of the water of life without payment. Uh, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. So there's two things, two promises that John records here. Jesus saying, uh, relating to those who put their faith in, in Christ. He says, first to the thirsty, I promise that you will be quenched. You'll drink from the spring of the water of life without payment. It's free for you. You can come and drink, not because it didn't cost somebody something, but it's free for you. But it cost Jesus his life, right? He paid the price so that we could drink freely. And all we have to do is come by faith, and he says, here's your cup. Drink this you'll never thirst again. It's the same thing that Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. He knew this woman from the inside out. He said, listen, you know, go get your husband and let's talk. And she goes, I'm not living with my husband. I know you're not living with your husband. You're living with a guy that's not your husband, and he's like the fifth one. I know everything about you. And she said, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Hello? Yeah, I am a prophet, but Here's what he said to her. He said, everyone, she, you know, she's at a well, and he says, give me something to drink, and she and she does, and he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is telling us that if you come to me by faith, that the promise for you and I is that we will drink of the water of life in the Greek, zoe, the word life. That's my daughter's name, Zoe. There's a river in heaven called the river of life, Zoe River. He wants you to drink of that, but you gotta to come to him. He paid the price so you can drink freely. It's a promise for those who will come by faith. Not only that, but then he goes on uh, to say that uh, those uh, who, who, who put their faith in Jesus are conquerors. And uh, Jesus told us that in John chapter 16, verse 33. He said, listen, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is an overcomer, so we can be an overcomer. So we follow in his footsteps. He overcomes, we overcome. Not in and of ourselves, but in and through him. John says it like this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Jesus overcame first so that you and I can overcome. We come to, we're born again of God. We overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, our faith in Jesus Christ. Who, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Listen, you want to you, you be a conqueror? You, you can't do it on your own. You have to come in Christ He's our conqueror. But Paul said in in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, we come that way. We are more than conquerors through him then who loves us. And here's the the promise for people that come that way. He says, "Then, then I'm gonna give you a heritage. This is speaking of spiritual adoption here, folks. This is speaking about the idea that we will become the sons of God, the offspring of God. Why? Because we don't start that way. You know, I mean, I think the Catholic Church says that we're all children of God. We're not all children of God. We're all creation of God. You have to be adopted into the family of God. You have to be born again into the family of God. Nobody just comes to the family of God. You have to come through Christ. And when you do, you're adopted and you get a heritage. That's what he's telling us here. This is a magnificent promise for you and I. We get to drink freely and we get to have a heritage because of what Jesus has done for us. All we have to do is believe in Him. What an amazing thing God has done for us. Well, not only are we going to see all a new heaven and a new Earth, not all, only are we going to see a new Jerusalem, we're going to see a new everything, but we're also we're uh, going to uh, we're have a new environment. Uh, we're also going to see the new eternity for unbelievers here. And I look at verse eight. This is a negative uh, promise. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns. Uh, in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. That is the second death. So this is pretty self-explanatory. We spent a whole sermon last week talking about the idea that those who do not put their faith in Jesus, their eternal destination, uh, will be in a lake that burns with fire and sulfur. And this will be the second death where they die, but they're never dead. And this is, God's, this is God being a just God. Hey, listen, we, we love the idea that God is um, gracious and merciful and all these kinds of things, but God is also, He's a judge. And he believes in justice. And there's not a single person in this room that doesn't believe in justice. We may not all have the same ideology when it comes to justice, but we all believe in justice. When it comes to us personally and something happens to us, that's when we want justice to the full extent executed, right? Somebody does something to my daughter, guess what? I want justice fully executed. But, it's, but it, it might be different if it's somebody else's daughter, Right? Well, God is consistent. He's the same; he never changes. He is judge, and He's made made uh, it very clear the way that it works, the way this world works, and He's given us one choice to make. We get the opportunity to make that choice, and if we if we choose to go, uh, you know, to to heaven through Jesus Christ, that's our choice. He's given us that choice, but we also can choose to go to eternity without him, separated from him, into the lake that burns with fire uh, and sulfur forever. We can choose these things. He's given us that ability, Uh, you know, and he will execute uh, justly because he's a just God, and that's tough to understand. These are difficult truths, but nevertheless, no matter how hard they are to swallow, doesn't make them any less true. You know, do you believe in the word of God or not? This is, Jesus talked about this more than anybody. Why did he do that? He talked about more about um, the reality of hell than he did about heaven. Why? Because he doesn't want anybody to go there. He desires that no one would perish, man. It's interesting that it says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable. <laughs> this reminded me immediately when I read these things of the parable of the sower and the four different soils that you know that that Jesus said exists in the world today when it com- when it relates to the Word of God. And uh, you know there is the path, the hard beaten path, that when the seed is sown, that it that it, it has no ability to absorb the seed. So what happens when you go and put seed? You, you know, birds or put grass seed on your hardened lawn that has not been watered f- forever? It just sits there. It can't permeate down into the ground, so it can't grow. So what happens? The birds come and they eat the seed up. It's exactly what Jesus said would happen to the, to the beaten path, the seed that falls on the beaten path when a sower would go and sow the seed there. A lot of, it would, you know, they just throw it out and some of it would be on the paths that they would make to, to take care of the crops. He said that'll never permeate that, that ground. I think that is um, the detestable ones, the ones who aren't willing to believe it. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 18, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Uh, This is what was sown along the path. They won't believe it. They don't believe it. They don't desire to know it. And so it sits on that hardened ground. That's detestable to God because God is a God of truth and he wants us to know him. And so he tells us the truth. Not only that, But then it goes on here, and it tells us in verse 20 of Matthew 13, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he who has no root in himself but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This is the cowardly. One that Jesus is speaking about here who when it comes down to when it's time to make a stand for the word of God they bolt, they're out they're, they tuck tail and run because they're cowards when it comes to this they didn't really receive the word they, they like the ideas of it but when it cost them something then they're like whoa, whoa, whoa I didn't want that I don't want to lose this relationship I don't want to stand out in this way or anything so they, they, they run and then he goes on here and he says In verse 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is the faithless one, the one that wants to walk by sight. I'll walk with Jesus as long as I can see where he's taking me, but the moment he diverts and I see something else, I'm going for after what I can see, and that's in the world. After the things that I can pursue, I'm, I'm, I'm getting choked out. Do you notice that all of this has to do with the seed, which is the word? The word of God, us trusting his word. That's, and that's why we're, we're experiencing the things we're experiencing in our culture today because his word isn't first and foremost. People don't believe in his word. The seed is being sown, but the problem is being sown into to these three soil types that aren't, that aren't uh, sincere and really walking by faith. But there's a fourth soil, and this is the, the only soil, the only soil that can produce salvation. Verse 23, as for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and another 30. The soil of the, the good soil, listen. This isn't good soil because the person has made it good soil. This is good soil because the person has surrendered to the Holy Spirit and being, been willing to say, what about God? What about his word? I want to know more. Give me more information. And to, under, to, to somebody who is really reflecting upon themselves and understands, like, yeah, I'm not a good person, that I'm being real with myself and examining myself, and I realize, like, I need a Savior. That's the good soil. And the, that, that good soil is cultivated by the Holy Spirit, Every person in the world has one relationship with the Holy Spirit, and that is the with experience. He's with everybody in the world. There's not a single person that has never been spoken to by the the Holy Spirit, you know, that he's not spoken to them. He's spoken to everybody. He's, He's trying to draw people. You can't come to the Father unless you're drawn. Who draws you? The Holy Spirit draws you. But the Holy Spirit draws you in a way where you have to reflect on the idea that you need a Savior, Like if you don't understand that you need something that you yourself can't get on your own, you'll never come to Christ. We live in a culture that thinks they're needless and they're so in need, so greatly in need, it's deception. I remember when the Lord revealed to me, I didn't know everything about myself and you didn't know everything about yourself, but isn't it interesting that the more you walk with God, the closer you press into God, the more you learn about yourself and the more you don't like about what you're learning you're like, oh man, when's the new things coming? Uh, I need the new things right now, Lord. I'm not liking what I'm hearing. But Paul said at the end of his life, folks, that he's the chief of all sinners. Why? Because the more you press into God, the more he reveals not only himself, but also who you are. And it makes you way more thankful for the gospel, doesn't it? Hey, be thankful this morning if you're in Christ because God has done the work in your heart. He cultivated that good soil Listen, we're, we're so depraved we couldn't cultivate the good soil in and of ourselves. He had to do it for us, but he did it. And there, there's that balance between, you know, um, our free will and God's sovereignty where he says, you know, I'm not going to make you do it. You have an opportunity to do it. You can't do it on your own. I'm setting you up to win, but you have to, you have to let me in, you know. It's like Michael Jordan sitting on the bench saying, I'll play on your team but you got to put me in. You know, he sets you up to win already, and you're like, I don't know. I don't know, Mike. I think we can do it without you. (laughs) You know, like, whoa. I think I'd probably go with Mike. The Holy Spirit sets you up, man, and he wants you to know that this morning because you can be fruitful in him, and maybe you're not walking in that fruit this morning, but God, return to the Lord, man. You know, if, if you're not walking in that fruit this morning, walk in it. If you're a Christian, and you know you know that there's been periods of time in your life that you've been closer to God, then press back into him. <laughs> Listen, he loves you, and he's, he will by no means cast you out. You just come to him sincerely, Lord. I'm, I want to return to you this morning. I don't know what's been going on with me, but I want to, and, and as Christians, we can have the same heart with the word, by the way. As a believer, I can be saved, but I can come at the word as, with a hard heart. I can come at the word with a rocky heart. I can come at the word with a thorny heart. And it will choke it out. It will choke it out. So take care of your heart. Examine your heart. You know, ask the Lord to keep it soft and keep it, uh, you know, in this place. He He desires that no man would perish; all would come to repentance. This is the reality for people who will not come to Christ. And this isn't what God desires, but this is what uh, the, because He's just. This is what He will do. He will execute this. You know. So I want to encourage you this morning. Uh, you know, really, again, just over and over again, be looking up. Things are changing. This is going to pass. This is all temporary in this world. All of it is. I don't care what you're going through. You'll overcome it. It's just a matter of time, you know, and you might not, not overcome it in this life, but you will be an overcomer because He was an overcomer, and you can overcome in Him. You press into the Lord, keep pressing in, and keep pressing on. Amen. Father, Lord, we thank you for this, this morning and for your word. We thank you for, God, the opportunity to, to just hear what you would have to say. We pray that as we, we would have the hearts that were spoken of, the good soiled hearts this morning, Lord, that the seed of your word would go in and take root and just burst forth fruit in our lives, Lord. We desire to be fruitful for you, God. We desire for you to be exalted and, and uh, be lifted up in our lives, God, that everybody can see that we love you and that we've been with you, Lord. We ask you, Lord, to just um, help us in this culture and the things that we face, all the challenges that we face before us, God, to help us to keep our focus on you, Lord, to set our minds on things above. Help your word to be the thing that guides us in this life, Lord. And no matter what the world says about how silly it might be, Lord, help us to just remain faithful and to, to press into you and to believe what you say. You are faithful. So, Lord, we just thank you for this morning. We pray as we uh, just close out the service, God, that your spirit would lead us, and we thank you for the new things that are coming. We can't wait to see you face-to-face, Lord. We pray you just encourage us with this word and help us to press on towards the prize in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.